The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke in the 19th chapter, verses 41 to 44. From verse 41 to verse 44 in the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee around, and keep thee in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. I indeed would like to call your attention to the entire paragraph surrounding that particular incident, indeed to the whole of what I read to you in the reading at the beginning from verse 28 to the end of this 19th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, because it undoubtedly does contain one of the most remarkable and one of the most moving scenes in the whole of the Scripture. It records a number of events which happened, you remember, on what we call Palm Sunday, because, as we were reminded, it was on this occasion that some of the people tore down branches from the palm trees to set them on the road along which our blessed Lord was traveling. And this Sunday is what we still call Palm Sunday. And it is a Sunday, a day which has a very definite message for us if we take the trouble to pay close attention to what we are told in these verses that we are going to look at. There is nothing, I say, in the whole range of Scripture which is quite so moving as this from whatsoever standpoint we may chance to regard it. It's a paragraph that is full of a series of most extraordinary contrasts. On the one hand, you see portrayed so clearly the glory and the majesty of our blessed Lord and Savior. Take his knowledge, for instance. He knows all things. He is able to say to two of his disciples, Go ye into the village over against you, in the which at your entering ye shall find the colt tied, whereon yet never men sat. And they went and they found it exactly as he'd said. He further told them that if those who owned this animal should come to them and say, what, you, what are you doing? What do you mean by losing this coat? That all it would be necessary for them to say would be, the Lord hath need of him. And that the moment they said this, the owner would be perfectly satisfied. And again, so it proved to be. Here he is then, I say, standing out in his majesty and in his glory as one who has all knowledge. And yet at the same time we observe his humility. He is none other than the one through whom all things were made and created. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He doesn't uh, silence his followers uh, when they say, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. And yet you notice his humility. He doesn't enter into the city like some great royal personage as such personages are wont to do, he rides in sitting on the foal of an ass. What a contrast. The creator of the universe riding on the colt of an ass. Or look at it from that other standpoint. He clearly was concerned here to reveal uh, his uh, glory. He does certain things as a fulfillment of prophecy, 
He is there making a revelation concerning himself. And as I've said, he accepts the homage and the praise and the worship that these common people offer to him. He is revealing, and yet at the same time, he is obviously concealing. He doesn't still proclaim himself openly and fully. He does so in this symbolical manner, and he does so in this form of the fulfillment of prophecy. But perhaps the most striking contrast of all in this record is this one, and it's the one on which I want to concentrate this evening. It is this remarkable contrast between the praise and the worship and the adoration of his disciples and the common people on the one hand, and the attitude on the other hand of the Pharisees and the scribes. Because you remember, we read of them, that some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, when they heard of the people praising him and acclaiming him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. They said, why do you allow these people to speak of you in this way? They say, Blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Why do you allow them to speak this blasphemy? Why don't you silence them? You see the contrast. The people acclaim him and worship him. The authorities, the Pharisees, again object to it and rebuke him and rebuke his followers. That is, I say, the most striking contrast of all. Now, we've been looking at these Pharisees and scribes for the last five weeks. We've looked at them the previous four Sunday evenings. It is but right that we should do so during these days in which we think again, perhaps more particularly of these closing days in our Lord's earthly life and ministry. And the thing that stands out right through the four Gospels is this extraordinary division. The common people heard him gladly. The Pharisees and scribes, they stood back. They simply looked on. And they questioned him and they queried him and they tried to trap him and to trip him in his conversation. They were always against him and inciting others to be against him. And finally they plotted together and conspired in order to kill him. Now, that, I say, is something that stands out on the very surface of these four Gospels. And it does constitute the essential tragedy of what happened when the Son of God came into this world. Now, it's all focused for us here in these verses that we're looking at tonight. Here is our blessed Lord arriving and looking down upon the city of Jerusalem. And we are told that as he did so, he wept over the city. Now, it is here, I say, we see the pathos. Try to conjure up the scene, the picture in your mind. Try to think of our blessed Lord there looking at that city, the holy city, so-called, the city of God, the great city of David, the city that had meant so much in the history of the Jews throughout the centuries. He looks upon it. And as he does so, he began to weep. Now, this word translated here as weep is really not strong enough. It should have been translated like this. He sobbed over it. It wasn't merely that he shed tears. As our Lord looks upon that city, he began to weep and to cry. He began to sob in an anguish of soul. What an amazing thing. Why did he do so? Well, I say that that is the whole matter that must engage us. Here is our Lord weeping for the city of Jerusalem. In spite of the way in which he had always treated him, he was accepted, as I've reminded you, by the common people, but not in Jerusalem. The authorities... The political and the religious authorities from the very beginning wouldn't receive him. They had rejected him. 
It was always outside Jerusalem, as it were, he done his greatest deeds, but not in Jerusalem. Their attitude was one of hostility, their attitude was one of rejection. That is how they'd always treated him. And here at this moment, he knew perfectly well, he'd already prophesied it, that it was that city of Jerusalem that was finally going to reject him, that it was there he was going to be condemned, that on the following Friday, they were going to say, away with him, crucify him, and take him outside the city wall, and there put him to death. He knows all this. And nevertheless, he weeps. He sobs as he contemplates the city and as he realizes all these things. Well, now, what is, what is the lesson for us at that point? Well, there are obvious lessons. The thing that strikes us above everything else is his great heart of love. And his heart of love is God's heart of love. Here it is, I say, put explicitly before us. He sobbed over the city of Jerusalem in spite of her sin. Now, according to the scriptural records, the Son of God came into this world at all for that very reason. God is not indifferent to us. God loves the world. It's because God loved the world. He gave his only begotten Son. And here it is focused in one theme. In spite of their sin and their enmity and all their rejection, here he is weeping over them. Never was there such a demonstration of his heart of love, his compassion for the people in their ignorance and in their blindness. But I want to suggest this evening that there is a deeper reason even than that for his weeping and for his sobbing. And that is that it is a revelation of his understanding of what was happening and of why it was happening. Let me put it like this in the form of a doctrine. Our Lord weeps there because he sees the tragedy of the position of Jerusalem. He saw what was going to happen to her because of her rejection of him. You remember he puts it here in details. He says, the day shall come upon thee that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children with thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Uh, he knew that was coming and it did happen literally in A.D. 70. But I say that what we are taught here is that he sees all that coming. He saw it all here about A.D. 33, whatever the date was. He saw it nearly 40 years before the event. And he saw the tragedy of it all, that God's city should come to such an end. And he weeps because of the tragedy. Ah, yes, I say, but what really causes his agony, his sobbing, is this that he sees what it is in Jerusalem and in the life of Jerusalem that leads to such a tragedy. And what is that? Well, it is the terrible tragedy of sin. Here you have, therefore, in one picture, the whole message of the Bible. The whole tragedy of the world always is the tragedy of sin. God made the world perfect. He looked at it all and, and saw that it was good. And he rested in complacence on the seventh day. That's how God made the world. But look at it now. And why is it as it is? The answer is, it is all due to sin. The tragedy of sin. Now then, here is our message. There is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ looking down upon Jerusalem. And he sees the whole tragedy of the world and of mankind summed up in that city that was lying there before him. 
There she is rejecting him and because of that she's going to be destroyed. She's going to be leveled to the ground. That noble building, that great temple is going to be raised to the ground, not a stone upon a stone. There's going to be a terrible slaughter. The Roman army is going to surround this city and all is going to be destroyed. It's coming and it's coming because of her rejection of him. That's the tragedy. And I say it is the tragedy of sin. And my dear friends, I'm calling your attention to it because what is true, what was true of Jerusalem, the world, according to the scriptures, is the simple truth about the whole world and about every single individual who comes into it. Every unhappiness in the world tonight, every tragedy, everything that's gone wrong, everything that makes people miserable and wretched, it's all due to sin. Sin is that principle that's come into the life of men and of the world and that has marred and has ruined God's perfect creation. There's the tragedy of it in Jerusalem. I see the same tragedy in any man who goes out of this world without knowing the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and Redeemer. It's the same thing. Very well, what is the essence of the tragedy? Well, our Lord puts it to us in very simple terms. What is sin, says someone? Well, the trouble is that we tend to think of sin, don't we, in terms of particular sins. But they are merely the symptoms. Sin means just this. Sin is blindness. Sin is ignorance. Sin is failure to realize certain truths. Our Lord puts it quite explicitly. If thou hadst known, he says, if only you had realized, but they don't. They didn't know. The city of Jerusalem and its people had never grasped the truth. They'd never understood it. They'd never realized it. But he says, these things are hid from thine eyes. It's ignorance. It's something hidden. They didn't know the truth was concealed from them. Now, that's just another way of saying, isn't it, what the great apostle Paul says in writing to the Corinthians. He says about this very gospel, he says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they believe the glorious gospel of Christ. And this is, as I say, the essential tragedy of the world this evening. The world is blinded by sin. The trouble with the world tonight is ignorance. And the whole business of the gospel is to give us light, to give us knowledge, to give us information. This isn't merely an emotional appeal. This isn't merely some general idea. The whole purpose of the gospel is to present us with truth, with facts, with something that we are to accept with the understanding and then respond to with the whole of our being. But it is primarily knowledge. So that the business of religion primarily is not to give us a comfortable feeling or to do anything like that for us. It is to acquaint us with certain truths, to open our eyes to things that are vital to our eternal destiny. Again, you remember that when this Lord Jesus Christ commissioned the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus to be a preacher of the gospel, he put it in these terms. He said, I'm going to send you to the people and to the Gentiles, what for? To open their eyes. That's the business of the gospel. My dear friends, I stand here this evening simply to remind you of certain facts. I have no gospel apart from facts. What differentiates the Christian faith from every religion in the world tonight is just this. That while all the others are theories and philosophies, this is based upon facts. We are not saved by believing a certain point of view. We are saved by certain things that have happened. That's why I say Palm Sunday is so important. Palm Sunday is an event in history. And we must never lose this historical connection. 
We must never turn the Lord Jesus Christ into some sort of a theory. No, no. He has entered into history as a fact. And the important question I want to put to you therefore this evening is the relevance and the importance of these facts. Oh, the trouble with Jerusalem was that she was blind, she couldn't see, she didn't know. These things are hidden from thee. What are they? Well, the first thing is this, the day of her visitation. If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, you notice, in this thy day, and then at the end he repeats it, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. What's he talking about? There he is sobbing over the city as he sees what's going to happen to her and what's the cause of it. It's because she hasn't realized the day or the time of her visitation. What's he mean by this visitation? Well, the answer is, of course, the truth concerning himself. You remember what Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, said, inspired by the Holy Ghost, when his son John was born? He was given to see that this son of his was going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And this is one of the phrases he used in thanking God for it. He said, for God hath visited and redeemed his people. Visited the day of visitation. Now then, let me put it to you like this. What our Lord is really saying there about Jerusalem is that her tragedy lies in the fact that she'd never realized who he was. It's all been epitomized there on the road just now. There he is riding upon the fall of an ass. And somehow or another the people, the disciples and certain of the common people, they suddenly see something in him which they hadn't seen before. And they begin to praise God and to shout out and to rejoice with a loud voice. What for? For all the, the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. They saw it in a flash. But not so the city of Jerusalem. Not so the Pharisees and scribes. Well, what is it then? Well, it, the answer is this. He is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the King of heaven who has come to earth. But these people hadn't realized that they'd seen the same things as these others, but they hadn't realized their meaning. They hadn't understood these things had been hidden from their eyes. You notice how the scripture keeps on saying this. Again, the apostle Paul, in writing to the Corinthians, puts it. He says that the princes of the world didn't know these things, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But they saw him, and yet they didn't understand. They saw nothing but a carpenter, an ordinary man. And they said, this man's a blasphemer and an imposter. Let's get away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. What was the matter with them? Ah, oh, they didn't know. These things were hid from their eyes. But these works that he's been doing, the people had seen them, and they'd seen them. And the people suddenly saw their meaning, and they thanked God for the mighty works that they had seen. It's the time of visitation. What is the time of visitation? Well, that's the whole story of the New Testament, isn't it? That's the special message of the four gospel. It is just this, that God hath visited and redeemed his people. There has the world been going on as it had been going on for centuries. Then suddenly something happens. A child is born in a little place called Bethlehem. Of a virgin. No human father. Born of a virgin. And they put him in a manger. Certain shepherds come and they say, We were in the fields just now and we heard some amazing singing in the heavens. And an angel appeared to us. 
and said that they've got marvelous good news that unto us this day is born in the city of David a Savior which is Christ the Lord. And they said we came, we hurried along and they told us exactly what we see now. That's the sort of thing that's been happening. Then follow on your history, wise men come from the east, and they say, where is he that is born the king of the Jews? And they've brought their offerings. What does it all mean? What is this? Who is this child? Follow him along, look at him at the age of twelve there in the temple, confounding the doctors of the law, able to turn them back in their own arguments about things on which they were experts. The boy of twelve... Who is this boy, this amazing person, who when they come back having lost him and say, why have you done this, looks at them calmly and says, wist he not that I must be about my father's business, meaning God's business, the things of his heavenly father, the things that belong to him, the things of my father. Who is this child? And then follow along for 12 years, for 18 years. We know nothing about him, but suddenly he appears at the age of 30. This carpenter of Nazareth and begins to preach and to expound the law in a way that men had never heard before. Read the Sermon on the Mount. And they can't turn him back. They've never heard anything like it. The people said, this man speaketh with authority and not as the Pharisees and scribes. Who is he? He's not a Pharisee, he's never had any training, but listen to him. What is this? Who is this man who says he has heard that it has been said, but I say, who is he? And follow him, watch him. Look at him healing the blind, cleansing the lepers, quietening the storm at sea, even raising the dead. Who is this? What is it all about? These things were known. They were not done in a corner. These are facts of history. These are events. What is it? Well, there's only one adequate answer to it all. God hath visited and redeemed his people. When the fullness of the times had come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made of the law. He knew that. There at his baptism the voice had come from heaven saying, This is my beloved, thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. It had come again, you remember, on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son, hear him. It came again. He knew. He had come forth from God. And he was going back to God. He had visited the world. He had come to save men. But Jerusalem doesn't know it. The day of visitation has arrived. Oh, the tragic blindness. These Jews in Jerusalem, these authorities, and these religious authorities especially, had got their Old Testament scriptures, and they were very fond of them, and they were always reading them, and especially the prophecies, and they said they were looking forward to the coming of a remarkable Messiah. And they were full of this sort of thing, and yet this is what happened. As every one of those prophecies was being fulfilled before their very eyes, they couldn't see it. It was prophesied that he should be born of a virgin. It was prophesied that he should be born in Bethlehem Ephrata. All these things, down into the detail, were all prophesied. He's verified them every one. And here on Palm Sunday, supremely, the prophet Zechariah in the ninth chapter of his prophecy and in the ninth verse, had been given to see that this great Messiah, when he came, would ride on the fall of an ass. And there it is. But still they who claimed that they knew their scriptures couldn't see it. The day of visitation has come. He is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. In him are all the promises of God, yea, and in him, amen. He has not come to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill, and he has fulfilled it completely and perfectly. 
He is the promised Messiah. But Jerusalem sees in him nothing but an imposter. And they refuse him and they reject him. And they cry out saying, away with him. Crucify him. We don't want him. They chose a robber called Barabbas instead of him. Oh, the tragedy of it all. Are you amazed now that he sobbed? Jerusalem didn't know the day of, his, of, of its visitation. Does the world still know it? Is the world interested in Jesus Christ tonight? As I've already said, I must repeat it with emphasis. My calling as a Christian preacher is just to tell you this, that these things have happened. I'm not preaching to you cunningly devised fables. This is 1955. Reminding us of the fact that it's 1955 years since these very things took place. He did ride into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday on the fall of an ass on whom, on which no man had ever sat hitherto. These things have happened. These things have taken place. He was crucified on Calvary's hill. My friends, these things have happened. Are they relevant to you? Do they enter into your calculations? Do you see their meaning? Jerusalem didn't. And that's the essence and that's the very cause of her tragedy. She didn't know the day of her visitation. Did you know that the Lord God Almighty has already done nearly 2,000 long years ago all that is necessary for your salvation. The tragedy of sin, the essence of sin, is that we are blinded to this, that the world doesn't realize this. The thing has happened, and yet they don't see it. But let me go on to say a word about the second thing. For the second thing he tells us, in, he puts in this form, if thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes. Oh, this is the height of the tragedy. Sin is that terrible thing that not only blinds us to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, but it blinds us to the wonderful salvation which he came to bring into this world, the things which belong to thy peace. What's peace? Well, peace is well-being. Peace means happiness. Peace means all the tranquility and all the equanimity and the joy that a man can ever desire. And this is the tragedy of Jerusalem, that he, the Son of God, came into this world to bring peace. You notice again, these people cried it out on the road. They said, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And you remember how the angels had sang the same thing. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Goodwill towards men. Thou knewest not the things that belong to thy peace. Oh, if the Son of God had come into this world merely to judge the world or to blast or to destroy the world, one could understand the world's rejection of him. But he came to bring this blessed peace. What kind of peace is it? Well, my dear friend, this is of the very essence of Christian salvation. It means, first and foremost, peace with God. Because all of us, as the result of sin and evil, are at enmity with God. Let, let there be no mistake about this. This is the very blindness which sin produces, namely to prevent our seeing that we are all, by nature, in a state of enmity against God. I know the modern man doesn't like this doctrine. 
But if this isn't true, well then I have no gospel whatsoever because I find it in the scripture from the beginning to end. We are all by nature the children of wrath. The wrath of God is upon men because of sin. Oh, it wasn't like that at the beginning. God made men in his own image and man was there in perfect correspondence and communion with God. But you see, men deliberately rebelled against God. He was foolish enough to listen to the tempter. And there he began to attack God and he became an enemy of God. And the wrath of God came down upon him and he was driven out of the garden. And there's a flaming sword still turning, guarding the approach back to the way of life. There is enmity between God and men, as man is by nature. I needn't keep you to prove that, need I? Every man born into this world is a hater of God. There is a hatred of God in every one of us, in our hearts. I've often pointed out that one of the most significant proofs of that is the way in which the newspapers, when they are published, Always put in and on their front pages anything which can detract from the authority of the scriptures. Anything which casts a doubt upon the miraculous of the supernatural. Anything that in any way detracts from the message of salvation. The natural man is a God-hater. There is enmity between God and man because of man's sin. And the first thing a man needs is to be made at peace with God. And you know the Son of God came into the world in order to do that. Man and God have been apart. This terrible thing has come between them. Do you know why Jesus Christ came into this world? He came in order to reconcile men to God. God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. Oh, what a wonderful gospel. That the God whom we've offended and against whom we've rebelled, in spite of it all, I say, so loved the world, that he himself has sent his son into it in order to reconcile us, to make peace. In order that the harmony that once existed might be restored and infinitely more. The things that belong to thy peace, Are you at peace with God? Did you know that Jesus Christ had come to give you peace with God? Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of God? Are you afraid of the judgment? If so, you're not at peace with God. To be at peace with God is to know that you're his child and that he's smiling upon you and that you have nothing to fear. Are you at peace with God? Here's the tragedy. That the world rejects with sarcasm and scorn and derision. The one who came into the world in order to bring this peace between men and God. If thou hadst known the things that belong to thy peace. But now they are hid from thee. The world will have none of him. And it remains in warfare and unhappiness and wretchedness. It's rejecting peace. It regards the gospel as something narrow and hard and against it. It doesn't realize that he came in order to bring this peace. But it isn't only peace with God, it's peace within. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And because we have peace with God, we have peace within. And this is the most wonderful thing. Peace in your conscience. Because whether we like it or not, we can't forget the past. The past keeps on resurrecting itself, doesn't it? And we remember things that we've done, and others remind us of things that we've done. The past, my own actions, and there I'm accused. The pointing finger of conscience. And I argue, but it's no use arguing. You did what you did. The conscience produces facts, it opens the books, and there they are. And I'm not at peace, I'm conscious of this condemnation, and I know it will follow me, how can I go on? 
that the blood of Christ gives me peace of conscience. For I know that he has borne my sins in his own body on the tree. I know that God has blotted them out. And I can say to myself, if God has forgiven you, why don't you forgive yourself? If God has forgiven you in Christ, who can lay any charge against you? Defy the devil, resist him, tell him to be gone, that he can no longer rob you of the joy of your salvation. Peace within It's the thing above everything else that the modern man lacks. He runs after pleasures and spends his fortunes on it because he's trying to find peace. He's trying to get away from himself and from his past. He dare not be alone. He's ill at ease. He rushes to the psychiatrist. Psychology is very popular. Why? It's disease. It's lack of peace. It's lack of rest. Man is on edge. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He's fighting himself. He can't find an inner harmony and he's doing everything in an attempt to seek it. But there is only one who can give you real heart's peace. It's that blessed Son of God riding on that fall of an ass into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. If only thou hadst known the things that belong to thy peace. It's a wonderful thing, this I say, to be able to look back and still have peace, to face the present, to face the future, and still enjoy peace. Yes, whatever may be coming, the man who is reconciled to God in Jesus Christ still has peace, for he knows that nothing will be able to separate him from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. As you sit in your chair at home and ponder the modern world and think of what's going to happen, tell me, are you at rest? Are you at peace still? Is your peace dependent upon what's going to happen? Or have you got a peace that passeth all understanding, whatever your circumstances may be? It's possible in Christ. He came to give that. He enjoyed it himself. When all forsook him and left him, and in the midst of the bitterness and the agony and the shame of it all, his last words were, Into thy hand I commend my spirit. It is finished. Peace. Peace within and peace with others. My dear friends, did you know that Jesus Christ offered you that? Offered you a tranquility of mind and of heart and of spirit? Offered you a view of life and an insight and an understanding which cannot be shaken, which cannot be disturbed, which enables a man to say with Paul, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therein to be content, I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. The things that belong to thy peace, had you realized that Christ came to give you peace? And that in turn brings me to the last thing, and would to God I hadn't got to say it. But I'm here not to say what I choose to say, I am here to expound the scripture. Sin blinds us to what inevitably follows if we reject Christ. If thou hast known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now are they hid from thine eyes, for the days shall come upon thee. When they were going to be destroyed, and as I've already reminded you, it happened in a most literal manner in A.D. 17. You see, I can put it like this in a phrase. When men and women do not realize the day of their visitation, There comes another kind of visitation. The visitation of punishment and of the wrath of God. There is to be a final judgment of the world and of all men and women. 
as certainly as I stand in this pulpit at this moment. Jerusalem didn't know that. It didn't realize it. That was hidden from it. In a light-hearted and a gay manner, it dismissed its own Messiah. It rejected its own long-promised king. And it thought it was doing something marvelous. It was pleased with itself. But A.D. 70 came, and Jerusalem was reduced to a heap of rubble. And the Jews were cast out of Jerusalem and their native land amongst the nations of the world. And there they remain until this very night, my dear friends. You see, I'm preaching facts to you. These again are facts of history. This thing literally happened. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, I don't say it. This happened because, because, thou knewest not. The time of thy visitation. I leave you with a simple question. Do you know these things? Do you know who Jesus of Nazareth was? Do you know why he came into this world? Do you know why he set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem? Do you know why he didn't call to a legion of angels to deliver him from that death? Do you know why he didn't do that? Do you know why he is to be seen there nailed upon the tree? Do you know why? Do you know the significance? Do you realize that that's the most important fact confronting you at this moment? Infinitely more important than the hydrogen bomb or any other type of bomb. Do you know that that's the greatest fact of all history? Have you realized its significance? Is your whole life based upon your realization of that fact? Do you know that it means this? Jesus of Nazareth was the eternal Son of God, the second person in the blessed Holy Trinity. You see, this has literally happened in history. God the Son has come out of heaven. He's taken human nature unto himself. He has trod the face of this earth as a man. He's worked with his hands as a carpenter. He rode on that foal of an ass. These are facts. That's the Son of God. God's only Son has been down in this world. A man amongst men. Have you realized it? Have you drawn conclusions from it? Is it the biggest thing in your philosophy at this minute? Did you know that he came? Because it was the only way in which you and I could be forgiven, be reconciled to God, and enjoy this peace, and have our eternal future safe. Did you realize that that's the message that comes streaming from that cross? There was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only can unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Do you realize that that's the only way whereby God can forgive you and you can be eternally safe? Had you realized it? Had you realized that there's no alternative to it? That if you don't accept this forgiveness that God offers you in Christ and Him crucified, you remain in your sins. And if you remain in your sins and die in your sins, there's only one fate awaiting you. And that is everlasting and eternal punishment. Something infinitely worse even than that which happened to Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Oh, my friend, did you know it? Had you realized it? Are these things significant to you? Are they the biggest things in your mind and in your heart and in your life? I'm pleading with you for this reason. 
that if you don't realize them now, there is a day coming when you will realize them. There is a day coming when every eye shall see him, yea, and they which pierced him. Do you remember what our Lord said about Dives and Lazarus? Do you remember that rich man Dives and this poor beggar Lazarus lying at the gate, the dogs licking his sores, and this great man living in his wealth and pomp and ceremony with his sumptuous meals and his gorgeous attire? He'd neglected God and all that pertains to God and had lived for himself and the world. But he dies and so does Lazarus. And there, according to our Lord, this rich man Dives lifted up his eyes in hell and saw Lazarus in Abram's bosom. And this was his great appeal. He said, look here, send him down to tell my brothers who are still on earth. They don't know it. I didn't know it. They are still living as I lived. I see it now. They don't. Go and send him to them. Send somebody to them. Awaken them before it's too late. They don't realize the significance. Those are our Lord's words. That is, I take it, hell. A place in which you hear a constant, endless refrain. And what it says is this. If thou hadst known, if thou hadst known, too late, the knowledge comes, and you say to yourself for eternity, if only I'd realized, if only I'd known, if only... My dear friend, I've held the facts before you. Look at them this evening. See them, realize what they mean. And give proof of the fact that you have done so. By doing what these disciples and certain of the common people did so long ago. Begin to acknowledge him. Begin to praise him. Take off your clothes and put them on the ground before him. Put them on the back of that fall of an ass. Give yourself to him. Give all to him. He died. He gave himself for you. Give yourself, surrender yourself and your all to him. That's the only proof that you realize the significance of these things. It's not too late. The day of grace is not ended. The door of heaven is not yet shut. The day is the day of salvation. You can still escape that terrible, awful, unthinkable fate of spending an eternity with the word, If thou hast known, if thou hast known, Oh, my friend, what can I say? Face the fact and humble yourself before him. And thank him for his infinite love and grace and mercy, which brought him, the King of heaven, to us, to the cross, to die for you, that you might have God's perfect peace. Amen.